This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Jeff Deist. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Human Action Podcast. It's great to be with you. My co-host, Bob Murphy, is on the road this week. We've got an excellent guest to join us in his stead. As you can see, it's a friend of mine, also a friend of the Mises Institute, Stefan Levera. Many of you know him from the Bitcoin world, from his eminently successful, eminently successful podcast, The Stefan Levera Show, but also he's a managing director at Swan Bitcoin International. And our topic this week is political freedom, economic freedom, and personal freedom, and how these three things juxtapose. And of course, I'm starting to think that economic freedom is the only one we've got left, even though we don't have that necessarily in large degree. Because like Stefan, who is living in Australia for most of his life, of course, myself in the United States, we used to think we had a greater degree of political freedom than perhaps we have after the COVID crisis. So Stefan, maybe we can start with the reasons why you personally chose to leave Australia over the last couple of years and also why you are currently in Dubai. Yeah, that's right. I was born in Sri Lanka, grew up in Australia. I am an Australian citizen. And essentially, the hysteria of the last two years and the culture in Australia drove me away. I was very, very disappointed with how things went in the country. And I was extremely disappointed at the attitude of what I thought were my fellow Australians, right? This, if you are an outsider looking into Australia, you have this perception of Paul Hogan and Steve Irwin and these tough Australian men who, who don't mm-hmm. take any you know, nonsense for anyone. And they'll you know, have this sort of rebel outlaw culture. But unfortunately, it seems like that culture is very much gone or deteriorated. And so it seems to me, if I had to sum it up, I think the culture in Australia is that it went very complacent. They, they had it too mm-hmm. good for too long. They got wealthy. They were the, the lucky country, as the saying goes. And that essentially drove me away because I was being shut down and stopped from, from participating in the Bitcoin world of attending Bitcoin conferences and Bitcoin events, obviously representing Swan Bitcoin and doing various things in the community. I'm being shut out from that. And I'm paying a very high tax for that privilege of being locked down. And so it just was very, very disappointing to me. Uh, I think if you had asked me now, I've been a libertarian for most of my life since I was about 14 or 15 years old. And so if you had asked me before this hysteria, I would have very much said, hey, come to Australia. It's a great country. Yeah, look, you know, the taxes aren't great, but overall it's pretty free and the people are nice and you know, it's good. But basically from 2020 onwards, that all changed. And I just thought, what is the point? Why am I paying this high tax? Like it might have been, let's say, obviously as a libertarian, we want taxes to be low or zero. But I thought, you know, it's tolerable. I can tolerate this mm-hmm. um, for the certain freedoms that I'm getting. But in reality, 2020 showed that it was like the, the tide had gone out and Australia was shown swimming naked. Unfortunately, a lot of Australians do not value freedom. They became complacent. And so for me, that drove that search for an alternative. And so for me, the reason I'm based in Dubai at the moment now is a few things. It's low tax, it's you know flight connectivity, it's good infrastructure. And for the most part, it's, it's ironic, but it ties back to our theme as well, this idea of political freedom and economic freedom. Because, you know, in Dubai, it's not like you all vote and campaign and so on. You just sort of, the, the mm-hmm. rules are there uh, and you you choose it or you, you 
you leave. And I, I, I saw something appealing about that because at least I can earn and pay very, very low tax or you know, zero income tax. Obviously, there's other little taxes that you pay, things like license fees, sales tax, and so on. So look, but the point is, it's, I, I viewed it as a much better deal. And yes, that was a big, obviously, it was a big move in terms of separating from uh, friends and people I knew back in Australia. But I was just so disappointed in that. Obviously, I had my libertarian friends, my Bitcoin friends, and obviously some family and friends there. But other than that, I just, I, mm-hmm. I, I saw myself missing an Australia that does not exist anymore. The Australia of the 90s and the 2000s is no longer there. Yeah, that's so true. The past is a foreign country, as they say. And the other thing we learned, Stefan, over the past couple of years is that the Anglosphere, you know, if we look at Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, didn't react any better than countries in the East. You know, we think of China as a particularly authoritarian country, and I think that's true. I think that's fair. Uh, but nonetheless, when we think of places like South Korea, when we think of places like Singapore, they were far more rational in my opinion, their approach to COVID, uh, both on the economic side and the lockdown side, the human side. Um, you know, there's so many different ways of looking at this, but it's interesting that as you're in Dubai, there's actually a, a small brouhaha over here in the U.S. Uh, the NBA, like other sports leagues, the National Basketball Association attempting to increase its footprint around the world, is planning some games coming up in the next season in Dubai. And there's some pushback on that because apparently Dubai has some pretty draconian anti-homosexuality laws. And so this is where these two things interact. Like you are able to live fairly freely in a way that you enjoy in Dubai in terms of your personal work, your personal life, your taxes. But then other people come along and say, well, if you happen to be gay and you live in Dubai, you have a tougher time of it. So these things always have to be weighed against one another. But I think this distinction between personal freedom and economic freedom is really quite overblown. Um, If you look at some of the surveys that different groups have produced, the Fraser Institute and Cato produce what's called the Human Freedom Index. Uh, Heritage produces something called the Index of Economic Freedom. Uh, Freedom House produces freedom in the world. They tend to to create an XY axis, right, with personal freedom as the X uh, and uh, economic freedom as the Y. And I, I think that when it really comes down to it, every country has elites. Uh, this, this is just a natural part of life. The question is, how can an average person lead their life in that country? That's really the question. And for you, anyway, the calculus in Australia uh, turned negative. Absolutely. And I think you're right to point out that these indexes are they're interesting, let's say. Right now, I obviously, in preparation, I had a look at some of the indexes, the Heritage one, the Cato and the Fraser index. And it's really interesting. If you look at who they rate highly, they say, oh, these are the free countries. And guess what? Canada, New Zealand, Australia all rank very highly. And yet, mm-hmm. they did not give very much in the way of freedom of movement, right? Which is supposedly one of the things these indexes should be looking at. It's almost like they take this idea and they conflate democracy with freedom. And obviously, mm-hmm. we as Austro-Libertarians, we see it more like private property rights are rights, and mm-hmm. democracy is cutting against that. It's like this idea of, oh, imagine mm-hmm. if, if we just get nine out of 10 people to vote to steal the other the 10th guy's property, then that makes it, demo- well, mm-hmm. oh, that's democratic, mm-hmm. right? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, it's a little bit of a caricature, a straw man there, but it, it's in modern 
in the Western world, they conflate democracy with freedom as though that's really the meaning of freedom, right? That you can that you can go and like protest or the right to free speech and all of these things yeah. when really I think the Austro-Libertarian aspect or way of thinking is more like, no, whose property is it? And who's the rightful owner yeah. of that? And you should be able to decide what happens on that property. Well, if you think about your personal body and the property you own, everything flows from that. Everything stems from that. If those two things are inviolable, uh, then you, you, know, you, you are protected. But look, if you held a pure democratic vote in Saudi Arabia on gay marriage, not, I'd probably lose, right? I mean, you know, this idea that democracy and freedom are inextricably linked is, of course, hugely faulty. Um, I just want to tell listeners a little bit about some of the countries that did the best. So here's the heritage ranking, which is an economic freedom ranking. Now, to their credit, this is about economics. They have four categories, rule of law, government size, regulatory efficiency, and open markets. And this data is a little more current um, from 21. So this would include the COVID year. So Singapore comes in number one. Remember Lee Kuan Yew? A lot of folks in the West viewed that guy as an authoritarian, and no one would call uh, Singapore a you know, democratic state today, per se. Uh, then Switzerland, Ireland, New Zealand, Luxembourg, Taiwan, Estonia. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, but when we go to the, the uh, Cato-Fraser Human Freedom Index, it comes out, shakes out a little bit differently. Um, they have Hong Kong in the top position. Now, this data is pre-COVID, so I think that makes a big difference. Uh, then Singapore, then New Zealand, Switzerland, Georgia, United States, Ireland, Lithuania, Australia, and Denmark. So I guess the point is that what good is a freedom index if a virus comes along and all, all these little proto-fascists turn into actual fascists and tell you you can't go to work? Absolutely. I think it's it's very challenging. And the thing is, on some of these indexes, you want to also look at things like freedom of doing business. Now, of course, in these indexes, they'll look at things like, okay, how quickly can you set up a business if you're starting from scratch? But here's the problem. If you're under a lockdown or if there are mask regulations or other restrictions on that stop you from actually doing your business, then it's not really that free to do business, is it? And, you know, I think that is a challenging thing to wrestle with because at, on one hand, you're, we're, we're, you know, we want people to have that freedom to do trade. But then on the other hand, there are these people who, you know, the, the public health technocrats or medicrats of the world are coming out and sort of making these proclamations. And, you know, it, it, it's very challenging. I, I'm hopeful, though, that, you know, this uh, round, uh, this, you know, this hysteria of the last few years is uh, waning and mm -hmm. we can sort of start to see more economic actual freedom instead of sort of, oh, we rate this country high on economic freedom, but in practice, how much was there? Mm-hmm. Well, I think first and foremost, all of these indices have to be updated to have a, a medical freedom component. I think that first and foremost, you know, are you under the, the subject of so-called public health experts every time there's a sniffle or a virus or a bird flu or whatever? I think that's important. Um, what's interesting, I want to read a little bit from the Cato-Fraser um, Human Freedom Index because they actually break it down into what they're weighing um, in far greater detail. I thought that was interesting. They have some categories like you would expect, like rule of law, but they have safety and security, things like homicide rates and, and uh, gang violence. They have freedom of movement, freedom of religion. Then they have the assembly, association, civil society, 
the expression information. So you get into more of what we would consider the political or social rights. They have re- relationships like same-sex marriage. So that's all sort of on one axis. But on the economic freedom size of government, the legal system, the tariffs, the uh, regulations, the taxes. But what's interesting uh, is they have a sound money category. <laughs> and so this goes to inflation and money growth. And so I took a quick gander at the uh, t- top 10 countries with the uh, least inflation in 2022. And the only major one there is Japan. The rest are very small, like the Maldives and uh, Vanuatu and Bolivia, Saudi Arabia. But, you know, Japan actually has low inflation despite all of their other problems. So, you know, that would be very interesting to view inflation as injurious to human freedom. I think that's very important. Absolutely. But as as I'm sure you and listeners are aware, they always play with these metrics, right? They always, you know, there's hedonic adaptation and it's a subjective thing and you know, as we saw recently, the recent CPI statistic in the US was 8.3% off the top of my head, which obviously nobody believes that. It's obviously much higher than that. Uh, and then it's not just that. I mean, even in the Japan case, the yen seems to have gone down a fair bit because it seems like a lot of people want the US dollar instead. So even in the case when there's supposedly low inflation by the government, that doesn't necessarily mean the value, the purchasing power, the right. buying power is... Uh, saying stable. Of course, in general, I would agree with you that uh, having low inflation is a good thing. Uh, but of course, you know, it's a, it's a time where people need to be thinking more carefully about where they store their value. Well, obviously, U.S. federal government was doing anything and everything it had to do to make sure that that number was not double digits. It wasn't going to be a 10 or an 11. It's probably 18-ish or something like that in reality. But um, Nonetheless, it's interesting to think about economic freedom and personal freedom and and what you'd be willing to trade individually. So, for example, when Fraser and Cato talk about religious liberty, a lot of people are atheists or agnostics and would say, I don't really care about that. That's not an important value to me. I'd gladly trade that for maybe some other kind of freedom. So I guess the question, the rhetorical question for our audience is, would you give up voting, for example, in exchange for paying zero taxes in a jurisdiction? Would you give up any kind of political expression, even, you know, mouthing off on Twitter uh, about politics in your country or any other in exchange for zero taxes? Would you give up uh, other kinds of political freedoms in exchange for zero taxes? I think a lot of people, myself included, would take that. Right. And I think if we really think about the impact of taxation, that over the course of your lifetime, like especially if you did this when you were young and you went overseas and you started making money and then imagine once you compound, right? If anyone just runs a basic compounding calculation on a spreadsheet, you'll find that the saving for you is massive by the time you get to later stage of your life. You have all this additional wealth that you could then put into whatever cause you believe in, right? Whether it's Austrian economics education or whether it's mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin open source development. There are all kinds of aspects that you could devote and put into causes where, that you believe in. And I think that's something we all have to really think deeply about, right? Uh, is what do we really see uh, as a life purpose, a life mission? And of course, you know, family is a big part of that too for many of us. Uh, but you really have to trade that off because at the end of the day, even if you were in one of the more supposedly Western free countries where you are meant to be able to be more free, well, guess what? Even in Australia, 
there were literally, uh, there was a pregnant woman in uh, Victoria who basically got arrested on camera uh, because she was organizing uh, anti-lockdown protests. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what kind of freedom of speech is there even in the so-called Western free nations when that right. is the case? And so, you know, yeah. Well, I think a lot of the freedoms which are being measured here in a lot of the countries which are scoring well in these measurements, the, the, point, the important point here is that these freedoms go out the window the minute there's a crisis. The minute there's a stock market crash, the minute there's a terrorist event, the minute there's a war, the minute there's a virus. So freedoms really matter when politicians are under the gun, right? And, and public officials are under the gun. And that's when they dispense with them. So we've always had wartime emergency suppression of speech and that sort of thing. I mean, this isn't new. And when we look back at, let's talk about voting rights. I mean, fast forward to 2022, women have been able to vote for quite a while. Black people have been able to vote in the United States for quite a while. Uh, What has that given us? You know, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton. I mean, this, this this is not a great value for most people. If we look at freedom of speech in the United States, which is, to be fair, I'm going to argue more robust than most uh, most countries in the world, and certainly more robust even than most Western countries. Um, Judge Andrew Napolitano, a great friend of the Mises Institute, he's given a talk about the, the First Amendment in America and said, you know, if you look at the Supreme Court jurisprudence surrounding it, it's been a lot more robust than surrounding the Second Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or some of these other important freedoms we, we thought we enjoyed. So the First Amendment has been pretty good overall in the United States. But again, you know, what has that gotten us? It gets us this political class. I mean, look at Twitter, look at woke, look at clown world. I mean, you know, what, what does speech get us at the end of the day? So the idea that freedom of speech is more important in a country than, let's say, the tax rate, I think is is arguable. Absolutely. And I think to echo a point I, I, think, I, th- I believe you've made as well is that a lot of people are just overly fixated on the social. They don't really think about the economic part, right? So they just think they, they get caught up into the issue of the day, whatever that issue is, as long as it's a social issue. It's very, very rare that people will really get up in arms about an economic mm-hmm. issue, where about taxation, about currency controls, capital controls, uh, business tax rates, right? Like, if anything, it's sort of people are getting riled up about all kinds of things, whether it's, you know, the climate or whether it's, you know, all these other issues, but it's always done in a social context. And it could be that maybe there's, who knows, maybe there's some kind of mental aspect to it or, or sort of natural biological thing where maybe that is more interesting to a lot more people. And so that plays more on the news, on the media, on whatever. And so then people just get riled up about it as opposed to people who should, I mean, obviously in our case, we, we should rightly be getting riled up about economic freedom too, right? Why, 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 where's the outrage? Where's the outrage over the high tax nations of the world? Well, the capital controls issue is very real, and I think COVID accelerated it. The idea of unbanking people, whether they're, it's because they're gun manufacturers or because they're Canadian truckers protesting COVID. Uh, if you look at countries like Turkey, which has uh, had a nasty currency crisis over the last few years, they have absolutely imposed uh, capital controls on money headed out of the country and on bank deposit withdrawals. 
that sort of thing is not unthinkable Absolutely. in the West at all. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you ever had to, to become an expatriate and leave your Western country, um, you know, that might be very, very difficult. You may not be able to move money electronically as easily as you thought. You may not be able to move physical gold as easily as you thought. And I think that's why a lot of Bitcoiners make the argument that in a, in a really ugly situation, Bitcoin is able to be transportable in a way that uh, uh, other stores of value are not. I think that's a valuable consideration. Um, but I'll tell you what, I, I think Americans care more about social issues until it really hits them. I think at some point, Americans are very soft and fat and weak and lazy. I mean, this is just, this is, it's just a fact. And so I think the slightest material hardship <laughs> uh, is going to cause a lot of Americans to, to have a real meltdown. And we're seeing that. You know, gas prices have nearly doubled. Inflation on groceries and other necessities is rising. Now we have a baby formula shortage in this country. So it is going to happen. But somehow, the, you know, the social issues just engage our brain in a way. You know, nobody's out there protesting in front of a Supreme Court justice's house over uh, abuses of the Commerce Clause. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, but abortion just triggers that hindbrain. I guess. I, I wonder how much longer that'll be, because whatever divisions or fissures we have in society are going to be far, far worse if we have a really nasty economic meltdown. Exactly. And so I think what happens is education is so important here, economic education. And that's why I, I am a big fan of the Mises Institute. I, you know, I owe a great intellectual debt to the Mises Institute and the scholars of the Mises Institute, because here's the thing, right? They things will break down and then they will be able to blame somebody. And because the population are not economically educated, they'll just believe that. So for example, the common one, oh, the prices are rising. Why is that? Oh, because of the corporate greed. It's like, wait, corporations have been around for <laughs> how many hundreds of years? How is it that all of a sudden they just became greedy, right? And obviously, as, as you know, when we study Austrian economics, we can understand that, no, no, it wasn't just like they became greedy all of a sudden in the last month. It's that they are stuck resolving their own issues and so supply chain issues supply you know these other issues that have been caused by other problems things like lockdowns and stopping of business and commerce and so i think maybe that's part of it is that economic issues can sort of manifest and then the root cause might be economic but then the downstream the impact is a social one and that's what gets people triggered per se that that, that triggers the hindbrain more but oh i can't feed my baby because no baby formula mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's uh, what Rene Girard described in, when he talks about scapegoating. And I think it's easy to, easier to scapegoat the other uh, on social issues than it is on pure economic issues. But if we have widespread unemployment, uh, you know, rising prices, homelessness, uh, starvation, that sort of thing, I mean, certainly people will probably coalesce um, along nasty groups, whether that's racial or, or whatever it is, regional, territorial, ethnic, religious. So we certainly don't want that in the West. And we've been free of that in the West for, you know, more than 100 years. And I think we take that for granted. We forget how close most people really are to the bone in terms of their personal saving or their ability to live without a paycheck very long or, you know, to their, the degree to which they would be dependent on neighbors or uh, charity or government very, very quickly. So let's take a quick look at Singapore. Right. Because I've read Lee Kuan Yew's 
a few different Lee Kuan Yew biographies, a very fascinating guy. And, you know, Singapore has been called fundamentally undemocratic uh, in the Press Freedom Index. Actually, I'm, I'm reading here, it has a, a Public Order Act, which means you need to have a police permit to have any kind of organized protest or to even hold a conference which has political elements to it. That Actually, Singapore ranked 151st out of 180 countries in this Press Freedom uh, Index. And, of course, it's infamous for some of its draconian criminal laws with respect to littering or spitting out your gum uh, or vandalism or graffiti. And there have been some Western tourists who have been ensnared and had harsh treatment by caning. So a, a lot of people would look at that and say, you know, this is a, an authoritarian regime, but it's been called a competitive authoritarian regime. So what should we make of Singapore? I mean, if you go there, it's unbelievably modern and apparently prosperous, but really a hell of a place to live not free in a Western conception. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I, I recall my visit to Singapore around December 2019. I thought it was really cool. Like, so Changi Airport, the Singaporean airport is, I think it's literally rated as one of the best airports on earth. Oh, yeah. The infrastructure is excellent. The service is excellent. I, I, you know, I had a great time in my short visit there. And so it's really interesting to see that parallel and so the way i see it is when i'm in these other countries of course make sure you respect their culture their rules Uh, but as long as you do that you can you know if you obviously setting the covid stuff aside because they've been a little bit on the more authoritarian side there but setting that stuff aside it has been relatively prosperous it has been very prosperous uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, you know for its citizens and people who go there to work and it's quite a common expat working destination I, I yeah i think maybe the last few years has kind of shifted that a little bit but on the whole it's still a really great place and i think what happens is maybe there's a little bit of a cycle almost like a pendulum swing to these things because let's say if you were to go to singapore it might have been much easier to get set up there say 10 15 20 years ago than today because now you sort of need more money to get in or you need a company to sponsor you to get in and you know, of course, there are ways in. Uh, you know, in, some, in most cases, if you buy property or things like this, there are ways in. Um, but then, what happens is that pendulum sort of they get they get richer, and so then maybe that is what sort of causes the 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 downswing, right? So they, they sort of have a mm-hmm. you know uh, that, that that said, uh, it's not that I think Singapore is going to go on a downswing, but it's kind of like you you want to find the places that are on the up and see okay, is that where I'm going to place some of my chips? So. Well, that is interesting. You want to find places that are on the up. And that's what Jimmy Rogers said about Asia at the turn of the 21st century. And you look at a place like Singapore and, and things work, right? Everything works. Everything is clean. Everything is modern. It's Subways. safe. If you fly well. Sing- it's safe. If you fly Singapore Airlines... Uh, internationally, let's say, and then compare that experience to a domestic flight on a 30-year-old 757 from Detroit to Seattle, where you're, you know, you're, the tray in front of you is half rattled off. Uh, you know, I mean, you look at some of these countries in the East and you say, well, wh- what is it? It's not just explainable by what, you know, you and I would consider unfettered or free market capitalism. That doesn't explain everything about why things just sort of work. And things work in Dubai, too. Now, there's an underbelly to that. There are people who suffer to make things work, and we understand that. We don't want to discount that. 
But nonetheless, if we're increasingly becoming authoritarian in the West, <laughs> you know, it's like it, it, you could have authoritarian and nothing works or authoritarian and things work. I mean, I, I hate to think that that's the choice in the 21st century. It's, um, I, I see it as the world, it's a big world out there. There's 200 countries or so. You can choose where you go and you have to just, you know, and, and even for me, like I, I'm bullish on Dubai, as you, as you were saying, like it's like this idea of what's on the up, right? I, I think Dubai mm -hmm. is on the up in terms of people coming here, business going on here, uh, favorable regulatory environment for the most part. Um, so, yeah, I think ultimately everyone has to just choose what, what jurisdiction that is. And maybe if you're an American listening, well, that's which state am I going to be in? Uh, as right. an example, right? And and right. I'm I'm bullish on that idea because that's really what rewards the jurisdictions that do well. And so you can sort of see it like a you know take it take yourself out of the bad jurisdictions and go for the good ones. And so that's I think that's the high level idea. Um, but uh, yeah, perhaps to your point as well, maybe some of it is circumstance as well. So as you were saying, Singapore, it's not just that they had, you know, relatively low taxes and so on. It could also be maybe the proximity to China, right? Because they were maybe able to, because they were able to do a lot of trade there. And maybe some of the Middle Eastern countries, right, like the UAE have uh, a lot of their business from oil and gas. Uh, okay, so maybe mm -hmm. some of that is a, maybe some of that is luck of the draw. You know, but at the same time, you, you look at other countries that were so-called blessed. Uh, Venezuela has obviously gone very down. Um, they had a lot of natural resources, and they didn't. They weren't able to. Uh, well, at least in the recent years, uh, has not been a great place. So, I think th there are always pros and cons, and you just ultimately have to look at where where things are going, and look at the culture, look at the overall picture, and decide. Well, look, you know what. Given my choices, I could either, and so for me, that was either sit in Sydney, Australia, stay in a high-tax nation where the culture is just going down. Like all these people, they believe in the state. They believe in lockdownism and they believed in all these things. So if you tried to argue these things with them, they would say, no, no, look how many lives were saved. Uh, despite the analyses sure. that were being done showing, and okay, maybe we might not fully agree with this, but there were analyses, and actually there was a recent one put out by Gigi Foster. Now, to be clear, she's not even a libertarian, but she's an economist, and she put out an analysis showing, even on a qualis, quality adjusted life years basis, the lockdowns cost far more than they saved. And this is obvious, right? Like to anybody who's really studied right. economics, it's obvious. But unfortunately, what the people believe matters because if a lot of the people around you, maybe they got invested into that lockdown belief early, now it's hard for them to change, right? Because they were kind of already committed. It's like a sunk cost fallacy. So for me, right. it's like either stay in Australia, pay this really high tax and, you know, sort of live amongst people who basically hate your freedom or go to another country where it's low tax and they don't really care that much about your freedom. You kind of do your thing and they do theirs. And, you know, maybe that's, about as much as we can reasonably hope, hope for, given given the situation and given the world we're in. Well, there's definitely a psychological sunk cost to the COVID narrative. It's going to make it very hard for a lot of people to ever you know, give up the idea that lockdowns and vaccines were good and necessary. And and I understand, you know, I, I admire your choice in saying I'm not going to sit here and just argue with crazy forever. I'm going to take my life in my own hands and go go out into the world and, and, you know, go where I feel like I can find greater freedom. But 
here's the fly in the ointment. Um, you know, when you move to Dubai, you are at least at the outset a guest. And, you know, you're not going to throw your gum out your Lambo as you're rolling down the street. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to go graffiti uh, uh, some mosque. Uh, and you're probably not going to pen, uh, you know, letter, letters to the editor denouncing the local government in the newspaper, right? I mean, that's not, you would feel almost naturally that as a new person, I guess, that that's not your role. But, but the, the, you know, universalism. I think, is the dominant political ideology of the 20th century, and it's not dead. And it manifests as political globalism, not the good kind of globalism where you can get a Diet Coke everywhere. I mean, I'm talking about political globalism, the idea that, that the whole world sort of needs to have a Western-style social democracy. And this mindset of universalism never sleeps, right? It is relentless. It's like rust. And, and so when, you know, when Stefan Levera goes to Dubai— he wants to be a good neighbor and do business and, ha, you know, be successful and uh, enjoy the freedoms that Dubai offers. But when some people go to Dubai, they look around and say, well, this is a place I have to fix. Right. right? <laughs> and so this, this is how all the trouble in the world comes to us because America especially, but the West more generally, has decided it's our job uh, to police the world and their political arrangements. And so... I think there, there will always be arbitrage. There will always be young people like you who are going to go out there and, you know, uh, go someplace else in the world or maybe eventually go to Mars or whatever <laughs> it might be. But I just wonder in a digital world uh, whether this arbitrage between jurisdictions is going to be challenged in the 21st century. Well, you're right in that it is being challenged in certain ways. But here's the question. Will they be successful? So a few examples, of course. So things like some of these supranational international organizations, they hate this sort of thing, right? The OECD and mm -hmm. other organizations, they're trying to do things like, no, you should have minimum tax uh, thresholds. But mm -hmm. at the same time, let's not forget, in the same way that Murray Rothbard wrote the arguments about uh, why cartels break down, well, it's a similar kind of thing because each country, they might be in a situation where they can't afford that because maybe the way that they are competitive is by having low tax. And so we see that dynamic as well, that there are challenger nations who want to uh, try something different, right? El Salvador, trying to go and be the Bitcoin country that you can freely go as a tourist and spend your Bitcoin or that you can set up a business there and things like this. So I, I, I see it like it's a big world out there and that the Western propagandists don't want you to understand that. They want you to think mm -hmm. that oh, only, only the U.S., Australia, U.K., Canada, New Zealand, these are the only countries that you would ever go to. So just stay, stay put, little plebs, right? They sort of tell us, no, just stay put and just take what you're given. We're going to tell you the truth. We're going to tell you what you're allowed to say on social media. And yet there's a pushback, right? So we're seeing, right, for all his flaws, Elon Musk, and for all the subsidies, and, you know, he is at least trying to push back on Twitter. So for that, for, you know, for what it's worth, right? Um, we're seeing people like Jack Dorsey come out and be fully Bitcoiner, right? And fully try to promote mm -hmm. this alternative money. So I think it's just an ebb and flow, right? So there will, of course, be ways that people are trying to control, but then there'll also be competition and there will be other places that you can go and other places where maybe they just don't get riled as riled up about politics, right? There's not like protests on the street here. People just either they... They look at, they assess the country and say, look, is it going to be 
a good fit for me, work, tax, business, other, other, you know, family, friends, etc. those on those dimensions, is it working for me? And then yes or no, am mm-hmm. I going there? And so I, that's, I think the high level way that I'm seeing it, uh, of course, I think that overall battle for hearts and minds, it still matters, right? Like it still does matter that we try to promote uh, sound ways of economic thinking, sound ways of thinking from a political philosophy point of view. Like what are we owed, right? I, you know, I owe you to you know, not aggress against you and you owe to not your, what you owe me is to not aggress against me and that we sort of promote that basic ethic. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I agree that some of that is going to be a cultural battle. And, you know, to the mm-hmm. point about what people get outraged about socially and culturally, yeah, some of that is uh, just what do people get outraged about. Well, maybe we need an index of the least political countries in the world. <laughs> that's a good idea. wherever politics does not dominate, that's where I want to live. So I'll leave you, Stefan, with this note. Economics is social cooperation. Uh, e- economics is human beings dealing with each other, hopefully absent force or fraud. And that's it. And so, you know, the idea that there are personal liberties or social liberties or political liberties, uh, which are somehow different from economic liberties, and these ought to be tracked differently and plotted on two different axes, I think is false. I think everything flows from economics, from our desire to improve our material well-being and for our desire to uh, interact with other human beings in win-win manner. So I think that's what it comes down to. Stefan, how can people keep in touch with you and uh, see what you're doing these days? Yeah, of course. So people can search me online, Stefan Levera, stefanlevera.com. And if they want to find a place to buy and learn about Bitcoin, swan.com is the place. And uh, Jeff, thanks again for uh, hosting me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next Friday. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.